People like People like games What's up, what's up, and welcome to episode 18 of People Like Games. If you don't know by now, shame on you and your family. I'm Solo. (laughs) Uh, I'm Lilo. And this is a show. Uh, As per usual, I do have to unfortunately plug the mixtape before we get into things, so... uh, be sure to check out the Twitter at people like games, say what's up and be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google play. And always, always be sure to leave plenty of disingenuously kind reviews to get a say positive reviews, baby. Positive <laughs> reviews, baby. Love us. We don't do yeah. this for anything, but love from strangers. Love from strangers and love of the games. Exactly. People like the, the, real, the real beautiful, beautiful combination. But without much further ado, shall we get into quick scope? Yeah, let's do our quick scope. So first up, H1Z1, once considered the primary uh, battle royale genre game, uh, has seen its player base decline 90% since June. From Damn. 150,000 to just 8,000 in the middle of February. Yeah. See you later, H1Z1. Yeah. Um, play more. Do you, did you ever play H1Z1? Yo, sorry, man. You're cutting out for a second. Um, I actually, I don't, I never did, but it's what happens when the new hotness comes in. Just saying, people like PUBG. Yeah, it's but just, then now people like Fortnite. Exactly. It's just the new hotness, man. You can see those those graphs online of user base and and whatnot. PUBG has been pretty consistent. It's up. It might be dipping a little bit now that Fortnite's skyrocketed. But yeah. H1Z1 has been that steady decline. Zombies are out. All right. Yeah. Zombies are old at this point. Yeah. I'm so tired of them. But uh, on to our next story. Blizzard has made Overwatch 50% off at the moment, so that makes the standard edition uh, 10 bucks, and the what is it? The special edition for 30 uh, mm. or 20 rather, excuse me. Um, worth it, I guess. Uh, it falls into line with exactly what we have been saying continually that Overwatch needs to go free to play. Yep, it's uh, definitely going in that direction, and they're trying to get more people to have play the game and watch the series and watch the um, Overwatch League. So yeah, it just makes sense, and I hope I hope it goes free to play. I mean, I'm not upset about supporting Blizzard and paying the full retail price, but more users is always better, and it makes the gameplay better, and it means they have more users come out with more content more content more fun yeah but simultaneously i don't want a lot of new people because i'm tired of being fucking <laughs> stuck in the purgatory of bronze playing you uh, you're bro. ranked you, you you're you bronze you silver oh my god uh, so, so you it, it, 
weights on the fingers. You got to do whatever you need to do, but like train yourself, bro. Dude, I don't you, know. you can train yourself. So like in, in, in overwatch, you have a couple tiers when it comes to competitive gameplay. So you have quick play, which is unranked. And then you have competitive, which is ranked. And so you have these things, this thing called SR, which is basically, how would you describe that? An experience Jeez. level? Yeah, exactly. It's just how how competent are you at the game? It's match. If you played any multiplayer game that has online competitive multiplayer, there's going to be a form of that. In Halo, it was all the different tiers: bronze, silver, gold, diamond, platinum, all that stuff. Blah blah. blah. Except for in this game, when you're stuck in bronze, the only way to get out is to be able to win multiple games. But people in bronze suck, so you usually just keep winning one and then losing two. And the goddamn algorithm is set to make sure that you lose twice as much SR for losing a match as you gain for winning one. Yeah, Uh, I mean, it's not like purgatory like that. It just means that you're expected to win, right? So they have complex economic algorithms like for the marketplace and whatnot. But hey, sorry, man. I tried to help you. You know, I did. We fell together. Everyone (laughs) who tries to carry me dies and loses. (laughs) Too heavy, man. You are too heavy. Let's just go with that. Anyway, (laughs) too heavy heavy to carry. Uh, So I got to roll solo. Anyway, uh, Twitch for our next story is releasing a new feature called rooms, which are always on custom chat spaces. Uh, They're basically trying to create a medium for people to just engage in polite conversation. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Twitch chat, but it is a wasteland of spamming and (laughs) you can't really have a goddamn conversation. You can't have a conversation on Twitch chat. So there's not much to do with that. It's just Twitch chat is just like Discord. It's kind of like Skype. It's a way for gamers to get together, and you can either watch streamers that you like or you could listen. Um, You could essentially, you can watch streamers you like, and then there's a chat room on the side. But yeah, what Solo's talking about is this chat room is usually just flooded with mods and bots and just trolling 24-7. So this is more of a communal workspace. Yeah. actually talk to people and try to have an intelligent conversation. Probably won't happen. Probably won't happen. But you can hope for the best. Anyway, Mm -hmm. on to our next story. LG wants to, quote unquote, forge its reputation in the PC gaming market this year. And they're jumping in with a new curved monitor, which was uh, something they released at PC Gamer Weekender 2018. I don't. I ha- I've had LG TVs. I'm not a big fan of curved screens. Um, I- I've dealt with them in the past, and I feel like there's a certain glare issue at certain angles. Thoughts? Okay. I mean, I'm excited. I think more competition is better. It always drops prices usually. I mean, that's just Hashtag what happens. Capitalism. As a consumer, that's what you want, right? So <laughs> That's true. I'm looking at the market for a 2K monitor. I mean, 4K would be amazing, but with the refresh rate that I, as a gamer, want, I don't have a graphics card good enough right now to provide for that. And with the market, the graphics cards, which we covered a few weeks back, it's just too high. But anyway, yes, more competition for monitors is great. LG, do what you need to do. Please get everyone inspired and get them to drop their prices to, to compete with whatever you're trying to do. I'm on board. Agreed. Anyway, next up, 
We have Jordan, or the Jordan brand, is collaborating with Xbox. Uh, if you're this familiar, cool. they're really yeah. saying uh, the new version, I guess, of Air Jordan 3 is at this point. I don't know what's retro or not, because if you re-release all the time, how do you find <laughs> retro to a certain That's degree? a good point. I didn't really think about it like that. That's a very good point. So now they it's have the a, new hotness every two years. Exactly. It's the like, same oh, we, new hotness. Is it just the color that's new, which I feel like they look familiar? Anyway, they're releasing uh, a combo with Xbox to do custom Jordan 3s and Jordan 3 Xboxes. They're doing a giveaway on their uh, Twitter, so be sure to check out that Xbox Twitter and see what the sweepstakes rules are. Pretty cool. Pretty interesting I mean, to see cool. Jordan jump in. The shoes are dope. Yeah, man. But, him by xbox it's what's happening you yeah xbox in every flavor and color but for someone who already has one yeah doesn't make any sense yeah those will be valuable but on to our next story we have barbie is releasing a tomb raider version of barbie in anticipation of the upcoming tomb raider film uh with alicia vikander um yeah, and uh She's gorgeous. Barbara Dow, not so much. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it, but it's just, do people, I don't, I don't know, do kids still play with Barbie dolls? It is interesting that it's evolved to the point that you can have that Barbie doll. It does make, it does remind me of a great documentary that is well worth checking out on Netflix called uh, The Toys That Made Us. It's four parts and it just goes over, I think, Barbie. G.I. Joe, Star Wars, and He-Man uh, in each episode. It's four episodes. And it just covers the process and the sort of epics of those toys sort of launching into super toydom. Mm-hmm. Societal be. impact. Such. Yeah, societal impact. Much better phrase than toydom. <laughs> <laughs> Not a real word. Don't the, think that's the thing. But. The only, see, everything's a real word. As long as you get other people to say it. That's true. Uh, Basis totally of language, baby. It's not something I will tell anyone to say. Read the book <laughs> Frindle. Read the book Frindle. All words are just get made it. up. <laughs> I'm a nut. I, I, I will always die on that hill. That every word is a word. Yeah, but yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, in other words, we have our next story. Atari is launching two cryptocurrencies. Uh which I get it, but I, I, I'm still sort of confused as to what function a Atari coin would have. Uh, hey, it's all for their gambling. If you if you read this article on Game Biz Industry or GameIndustry.biz, sorry, I totally jacked that up. By Brendan Sinclair, you got two different types of uh, cryptocurrencies coming out, and Atari is hedging their bets. They're putting a little capital in, building the building the brand really and hoping that this takes off so that they can use it as gambling currency. That's what I, I call a pivot. It's just smart. I, I think because there already is gambling in games, they're trying to corner the market in terms of what they're trying to do, I guess. I haven't heard of Atari in a very long time. I don't know what they run. I'm sure. Probably I'm genuinely just not familiar with cryptocurrencies. I have a brother who is very interested in it but i 
don't particularly get it. So maybe we'll bring on someone because cryptocurrency and gaming is something that uh, is going to become more prevalent and is something I should take a look into. So we'll be back on that topic definitively. Anyway, uh, next up, uh, we have uh, a recent report from Gaming Today, which was based on a online discussion uh, that found that 69% of consumers nice, find cosmetics uh, <laughs> microtransactions acceptable. Uh, I guess that's pretty cool. Uh, I sort of find cosmetic microtransactions acceptable too, as long as it's a direct pay for said item and not a loot box. Right. 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 I yeah. agree. Yeah, this is that. it's a cool article on also gameindustry.biz listing out a whole bunch of individuals, 2000 comments, 450 topics, over 10,000 poll responses to all the questions that were asked. And it seems like, I mean, I'm okay with it too. It's in all the games that I play currently, whether it be PUBG, Fortnite, Overwatch or others, None of them are pay to win. It's all just pay to look cool. And if you look good, you play good is how some people think. Like yeah, myself. I'm not going to so, disagree with that. Right? If you feel good about your character, you're going to do better and you're going to kill more people. But um, that's not bad. It was cool, though, to see the overwhelming response and the over- overwhelming negativity of the, the PA are big fans. Big, these people are big fans of EA and what they're doing with Battlefield 2 or Battlefront 2. Sorry. Yeah. So, clearly. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah, what cosmetics is just the way the market is, and you're paying for that. But uh, oh no, as long as it doesn't influence how I can crush people in the game, I am perfectly fine with having microtransactions. That I very much agree with. As long as it does not uh, affect competitive balance. Mm-hmm. Anywho, on to our next story. Uh, we have a little bit about a upcoming book. Uh, just keeping in theme with last week's uh, little plug for the new Bioshock book, uh, which be sure to pick it up. Um, This is the Super Mario Encyclopedia, uh, which is going to be published by Dark Horse Books. Uh, It's available for pre-order at the moment. Uh, It's going to be released on October 23rd, but it basically is a jam-packed or this is a quote from the amazon product description uh super mario encyclopedia is jam-packed with content from all 17 super mario games uh and tracks the evolution of the characters uh the introduction etc in line with other books uh and i sort of like this trend uh, finding the sort of definitive books on specific series would you buy something like this for any other games that come to mind are you kidding me if i could learn about kingdom hearts and what square enix how their plan was who was on drugs and like who thought of this idea to be like let's put all these random characters together in the disney world and see if it works out we'll Dude, make that, a story you haven't heard that go. story we'll, we'll jump into it a little bit next week but it happened in an elevator between one of the guys who worked at Disney Japan and a guy who worked at Square Enix and they were in an elevator and they were like, That's you know, I have an weird. idea for a game that would feature Mario characters. And he's like, oh, really? Let's uh, let's sit down. And then it just evolved into that. I'll do that. Well, I think it's genius. If I, there was a book written about it, I like it. I'm definitely down with seeing um, the stories of franchises in 
like the histories. I love that kind of stuff. It's sort of like a encyclopedia documentary, right? Mm-hmm. Or a documentary on paper. So like a book. I, it's a book. <laughs> oh my God. But it's an encyclopedia or it's a like a paper with words on it that transmit information like you would learn in a movie. Yep. Yeah. You have to read it with your eyes. Exactly. You see it with your eyes. You see it with it's your crazy. brain, but you read it with your eyes. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> on to the next story. Uh, we have Microsoft uh, talks a little bit about uh, an, a potential Xbox One keyboard and mouse. Uh, if you, at the moment, don't, you can use a keyboard and mouse when playing Xbox uh, One X, especially for first-person shooters. And according to one of the engineering leads over at the Xbox team, uh, Mike Ibarra, they apparently are aware of it, but and they could set up uh, a method to block it, but they want developers the freedom to operate games as they see fit. Uh, I think that sort of ability would attract a lot of people over to the Xbox that necessarily wouldn't play otherwise uh, because you know a lot of pc gamers have issues with controllers when it comes to fps's yeah 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 and so maybe interesting but it, it they've 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 mentioned that they're definitely going to be coming out with their own version of a keyboard mouse but i guess the worry would be that if they did that they would sort of make the xbox into its own pc instead of yeah, it's going to turn into a computer. It's a desktop, a gaming yeah. desktop, essentially. Exactly. At which at point, just get a computer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just it's kind of silly. <laughs> Hopefully, they don't accidentally time. Nintendo switch their own revenue lines. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just, just um, morph it all into one. Like, oh man! Uh, all shit. right, listen, we're going to sell we're going to sell Microsoft desktops now in the form of Xbox One X. You'll have exactly. a keyboard you can play. I actually didn't even know that you could do this on my Xbox. I had no idea you could have a mouse keyboard, but it's cool. And I can understand the unfair advantage that people are afraid about or afraid of. Um, be smart, I guess, because it's a thing for Microsoft to monetize it. But of course, I don't know the business side of how much it costs to get that stuff developed and then shipped and then marketed and sent out and all that stuff. So yeah, I'm sure entirely. Microsoft has familiarity with how to build, sell, and market keyboard mouses. Dude, I, I get I know, it, but I'm it's just like opening up a new franchise. Is That's a new, true. A new item line. It's got to be difficult, and you think they're going to see the return. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah. it might just be unnecessary. It's redundant when people can buy their own off the shelf, and it's cheaper, and it works. Yeah, you know? that makes sense. And then uh, to wrap up here with Quickscope, we have... A little bit of more Fortnite information. So uh, they announced that uh, a major <clears throat> on Reddit that a major uh, shotgun nerf would be coming. Uh, a lot of people since the beginning of the game have had an issue with how powerful the pump shotgun is. Uh, and so according to the developer, uh, they mentioned that the pump shotgun's high damage is balanced by its long reload time and bypassing that weakness makes the weapon stronger than intended. So with the upcoming release of 3.00, which is an upcoming patch, which with no definitive release date, they are making an adjustment to the pump shotgun behavior. We fire the pump shotgun and quickly switch weapons. The next time it's selected, it will be forced to pump before firing again. The feature will only be enabled for pump shotguns and they will 
monitor other weapon types. Um, and with season three coming up as well, uh, that looks to be, you know, interesting to see if a lot of people are affected. Pump Dragon, oh, yeah. it's it, super powerful. I don't know if you've seen the gameplay on Twitch, but that's just what all the pro streamers do. Like these guys who are the best of the best at playing the game and hundreds of wins. But yeah, it, for those who don't know in the game, you can equip multiple types of the same item, right? It doesn't really matter how many you have. You have five inventory slots and you can equip the weapons. And when you see on streams, like it's, for instance, I'm just going to advertise from Hyper Ninja. He's one of the top streamers for Fortnite uh, right now. And he'll equip two pump shotguns in the second and third slot. And then he'll switch back and forth when he's fighting someone because he gets around having to reload that shotgun. He can just keep firing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it doesn't have to do the reload animation right? Mm-hmm. So if you're in between that and then switch over real quick, you can fire immediately as you switch and then reload and then switch over again, immediately fire. And the original gun will have been reloaded. I now, see what you're saying. Not just with the pump shotgun, but also with the pistols that people are having a lot of problems with. We covered a few weeks back how the, um, you know, Fortnite was trying to nerf the pistols and how you can headshot sniper someone from across the map and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But you can do this same technique with the really powerful Magnum pistols where you equip two of the same type of pistol or any pistols really back to back. And you just switch, switch from one shot to uh, one slot to the next slot and keep firing shots after shots. So if it's a six chambered pistol, you can shoot 12 shots back to back much faster than if you just shot six in a row, switched over and shot six in a row. Make sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're trying to do that. I'm surprised it's only the shotgun. I guess the shotguns had the most effect because people will literally take the original shotgun, the one that's not special, not green, not blue, not purple. Those are the different rankings of mm-hmm. shotgun yeah. powers. Yeah, they just take the original one, have two of them, and they absolutely decimate people because you can switch back and forth and get around the reload animation. Uh, it's really, uh, really clever. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, that's annoying, and I'm glad it's over. Uh, yeah. And yeah, now let's... Uh, Let's let's move on to the uh, the main segment here, uh, right. starting up with a with an interesting story that uh, Major League Baseball has its sights set on esports. Uh, the vice president of games and VR at MLBAM, which is their uh, Major League Baseball advanced media digital uh, outlet, uh, which deals with esports. Um, we'll get into that a little further, but they mentioned it's about fan engagement, find the right place to go. I think it's pretty interesting given that FIFA 18, NBA 2K, the, and NHL 18, um, you know, all th- the latter two, which are, the, the, you know, some of the highest selling games in the U S and FIFA, which is one of the best selling games in the world. Um, yeah. you know, those are really specific markets that would, those are just fun games. You don't even have to be a, everyone plays FIFA. That's an automatic bet. You know, you very rarely find people who are like, Oh, I haven't played a game of FIFA. A lot of the people I know play NBA, not as big a market, but still huge. And NHL is a really fun game. I Dude, according to this article, I'm just saying NBA 2K and NHL are bigger sellers in the United States than FIFA. I think in our in our specific circle, we definitely have friends that played FIFA more so than NBA 2K and NHL. But those are also fun games. I guess I guess it's much bigger than we we're expecting. But, but the, I get what you're saying. It, it's, it's just it's, it's interesting for games. baseball uh, in particular to see 
how we've sort of, you know, never spoken about a major baseball game that's yeah, really fun, you know? Ken Griffey Jr. game in the back. Oh, no, backyard baseball. I mean, best the, game. I played, I, I love baseball games, I'll be honest, but there hasn't <laughs> been like a fun arcade style baseball game in years. I think it was like Triple Play 99 was the last one that had really fun, interesting characters, like a two gigantic team, all small people team, <laughs> super fast, whatever the case is, but yeah. like a yeah, yeah, yeah. Super Mario Strikers of baseball, but. They haven't done they it. Didn't so. have Mario Baseball, but I thought, you know, I thought you were talking about Sony and Microsoft specifically. I'm yeah. Talking about, yeah, baseball in particular, their own NFL blitz sort of deal. Uh, I guess it's a little bit more difficult with baseball, but, um, you know, if you're unaware, they signed back in 2016 a deal with Riot, right, is the company that created League of Legends, which we're going to get into is the biggest esports game in the world uh, and they struck a 350 million dollar partnership that's going to last till 2023 to you know establish uh, league of legends streamings i don't really know where they've gone with that i feel like everyone watches on twitch for the most part um, right so and with baseball in particular i'd be pretty surprised to see a major like baseball esports leagues spring up i I, i'm just very doubtful actually i'm not doubtful of the nba league anymore but i'm just doubtful of sports esports but i could be totally wrong i think i i think the idea is just uh i think the idea is like major league baseball is excited about the opportunity that esports presents especially with the sports genre it's something that they're still looking over. I mean, I've seen, I've watched FIFA tournaments, but I've only seen them on YouTube and stuff like that, right? I've watched um, NBA 2K tournaments and Madden tournaments, but I've only seen them on YouTube and stuff like that after the fact. Uh, MLB is a business, and as a business, they're looking at everything. And it's just interesting to know that these big franchises that have a history of success, right, are looking to come into the esports realm. And that's just definitely cool to me. Mm. Well, it'll be interesting. I just don't see an angle of entry for baseball in particular. Probably just investment, man. Just investment. You yeah. invest in like in Twitch, and then Twitch blows up because they get all the rights to everything. But, but that makes base MLB is not a VC. It's MLB needs to, like its own game and league to push. But like even baseball viewing numbers are down. What are they really going to do with the esports league? They're the the age bases that or the age that makes up the demographics of baseball versus esports is so divergent that it's sort of difficult to bridge to a certain degree. Right, but right. I gotcha. We'll see. That's usually yeah, we'll what I say with all these things. I could be right. I could be wrong. You never know until you know. And then I go out or then I'm silent about it and never bring it up again. <laughs> and then no one knows. <laughs> and then no one knows. But uh, next up, we have System Shock Reboot. So System Shock was a game that came out in 1994 on PC and Mac and Linux and was considered one of the, you know, a really breakthrough in terms of its uh, 3D engine, physics, uh, and its gameplay. And... This company aimed to remake the game literally from like shot for shot. Uh, same way we were talking about last week with the uh, remastering uh, games. 
and they raised $1.3 million on Kickstarter and recently announced that the remake was put on hiatus. Um, a little odd, and it's really interesting to me, and the reason I mentioned this story in particular is because I wanted to be able to understand what would happen. So is it almost 21,625 people ended up donating for this project? And so by nature of donating for that project, now suddenly they're like, oh, it's on hiatus. Uh, and we're going to have the product for you in 18 to 24 months. Uh, a little strange. I've, I've been curious about the potential of Kickstarter for game development and had thought about, you know, what if something like Cuphead had gone to Kickstarter instead of, you know, the creators had gone to Kickstarter to be able to fund portions of the game. Uh, would it have been as cool? I don't know, but it's interesting. Uh, what do you think about Kickstarter? Kickstarter's I, potential in light of something like this. I think, well, if you're talking about Kickstarter as a whole, I think it's a brilliant idea. And there's been potential a lot of Potential for gaming. Uh, for gaming in general, it's, uh, what, what was the other game? Oh, Jesus. What's that game that you could do the expanse like if the world's never ended there's like 6.4 billion or 64 billion different options of worlds you could land on it's whatever it was on kickstarter too it started there i think great no man's opportunity. sky no man's no man's sky there yeah. we go yeah didn't it didn't it start on twitch or yeah not on twitch, sorry. yeah it, but it also was not very it good did. it did fail miserably but it did fail. i think well, there's the a history behind it. exactly there's history and if you just take games in general, I think there's been a history of board games that have been very successful. Uh, they started out here and now it's a huge company and a huge brand and things like that. Like people will support these. Well, this story personally about this system shock remake is just it, to be, I, I think is actually awesome that the CEO of the company realized that he was getting way too ambitious and he didn't follow the true heart of those backers, right? He, him and his team saw the money, saw the money coming in, expected only success. And because of that, they got overzealous, right? Mm -hmm. And that's just a thing to hear. I do think that he's going to come out with a product. I don't know what the repercussions are if you don't deliver on Kickstarter is right now, mm -hmm. but it's probably, I mean, people could eventually get their money back. Um, the thing is, it clearly seems like he sold it or he, rather he used it all already. He had so many people and he had to lay off a couple of people. Mm, but, uh, also very true. I mean, I think, yeah, the money, I think it's good that he's reevaluating. Hopefully we have a success story out of this. Obviously it's not the greatest right now, but Kickstarter as a medium, I fully support um, indie developers have, you know, utilized Kickstarter to get some funds to start creating their games and release them on steam to some small success. So mm. um, I want it to work. Let's go with that. I want it to work That's fair. so that we have more video games out there. That's cool. That's cool. Um, and I agree with that as well. Um, indie development would be, it would be helpful for those sort of, for a lot of those projects and indie game development falls under that purview. But uh, next up, uh, because we want to keep this episode or this half short enough for you guys to be interested in staying for uh, Lilo's interview with Matt Laycock. I'm going to cruise a little bit through. So uh, just a quick note that a pending case amongst the Supreme Court 
titled Christie vs. the NCAA. Uh, it is a legal battle over New Jersey's right to offer legal sports betting. Uh, it's been a case that's been raging out for five years. I'm going to get into a little bit of the backstory, which is hilarious, but uh, the decision could affect whether uh, we'll see wider esports betting and just general gambling and sports or just legal gambling uh, sort of widen in the U.S. It's going to have a sort of domino effect. Um, so basically, uh, in 1990, uh, 1992, uh, a federal law was passed called the Professional uh, and Amateur Sports Protection Act, known as PASPA, uh, and it basically made it illegal for states to authorize lottery sweepstakes or other betting, gambling, or scheme-based uh, schemes, I guess is the word, on competitive games in which amateur or professional athletes participate. So it was uh, an issue that New Jersey was like, they had one year after the passage because they were in exempt because they had casinos and racetracks uh, to sign up for it or to uh, sign or to take advantage of the exception, but they didn't pass any legislation. So then a couple of years back in about 2000, uh, 10 New Jersey legislature decided that they wanted to be able to legalize gambling and they made it a part of the vote and it passed overwhelmingly. And so they passed it. And then the NCAA, the NHL, the NFL and the NBA and the MLB went to federal court to challenge oh. that 2012 law, <laughs> arguing that it violated PASPA to be like, yo, you signed a deal to say that you are not going to legalize gambling on sports too bad you had a year, you fucked up, you're not allowed mm -hmm. to do it anymore. And so oh, they were like, okay, no, we're going to do something different. And so in 2014, they went back to the drawing board and they decided that instead of passing a law that said that they were going to allow uh, or legalize gambling, they just repealed the laws they had on the book banning gambling. Oh, wow. Jersey, That's baby. Awesome. That's the Jersey thing. There you go. <laughs> and then the, guess what happened? The NCAA and the professional sports leagues again went to federal court. Uh, and they basically said that uh, the repeal, although quote unquote artfully couched, that was the judge's, part of the judge's phrasing, uh, the law, uh, it was still nonetheless authorizing sports betting and therefore wouldn't be allowed. <clears throat> Therefore, they appealed, and then this is what the Supreme Court case is about, saying that they repealed a law that was passed as part of the New Jersey legislature, and then it's infringement upon the 10th Amendment, which is a, a delineation of uh, legislation between state and federal government, where it's like no law that a federal government any law a, government, a federal government hasn't passed, the state has a right to pass their own version um, of that law. Uh, and that's where you saw like gay rights. You had 50 states with 50 different uh, changes until the federal law mandated it. Therefore, then it would boom, all 50 states automatically have to adopt it. So you have something similar there uh, with regards to that. And so um, it'll be interesting to see because then there's a lot of other states that would want to repeal their own gambling. And I could see, you know, if you're familiar with DraftKings and Duel Kings, you remember them? Yep, yep, yep. You remember how they got shafted by being banned in every single state? 
yep. within. Yep. And so their death uh, was basically catalyst. A, not even a catalyst. It was just, I mean, they've been trying to get this forever, but it was just an example of what could happen to esports betting um, if yeah, this yeah. law is passed. And they're like, yeah, you know, that's going to fall under the category of state, you know, licensed amateur professional athletes, you know? I'm sure mm-hmm. each OWL team is signed up with the state to be representative of the state in a league like that. But that's all legal mumbo jumbo. Um, so just an interesting uh, case to keep in mind of. We're definitively going to keep you guys updated. Uh, the hearings are going to be beginning around March 5th. Uh, I got a inside no, no, lead no, no. in D.C. The decision is by mouth March 5th. Oh, but excuse me. The, we should have a decision by March 5th. So. Um, like, we'll give you... As early as March 5th. I mean, it takes the, the Supreme Court a long time to figure out these things, but I think it's as early as March 5th. They already had the hearings back in December. Uh, excuse me. So, misspoke. So, once we get the ruling, um, we should be able to uh, give you guys an update, and we'll see how that sort of works, and we'll, we'll follow that thread uh, to see where it leads uh, down the line. But anyway, that's a, that's all for eSports betting. Let's get into our next what else you got? story. Sea of Thieves is planning to add micro uh, transactions three months after release. So it's not going to be loot boxes, but they are going to introduce purchasing within three months. Yep. I mean, did you play the beta? I, oh, you didn't get anything? I didn't get the access. How yeah, was it? That's, it was awesome. I think it was really fun. I joined a random squad of three people. They were all French. And I had no idea what they were saying, but we ended up playing together. So I don't know how the servers are set up, but that was, uh, it was an experience and we tried to communicate and it was just hilarious. I I did a lot of things that I shouldn't have done. Anyway, game is definitely fun. You got in-game gold for completing quests. You could buy cosmetic items that will help you in the game. I was unfortunately not able to play long enough to get like a new gun. So I don't know if the guns are actually different where if you can pay, you know, if, Eventually, with these microtransactions, if you could pay for gold to buy cosmetics, can you also pay to buy guns that have different things, or are the guns just cosmetic as well? Mm, um, yeah, I see what so, you're saying. As well, again, I think the article mentions that the the pay the microtransactions are only for cosmetics and for in-game things like pets and stuff like that that won't have any effect really. But uh, I don't know. I think I'm hopeful. I mean, everyone does it, right? Everyone's doing it. It's just microtransactions is the way to go. Um, hopefully, they stick with the cosmetic approach and not the answer gameplay approach. You know? Again, it, it, it's going to be a bit tougher to fight those microtransaction battles once no one pays for a game and they're paying for a, a monthly rental service. It's like, I didn't pay full price to have to pay microtransactions. They're like, what full yeah. price, dog? I'm like, son of a bitch. You're just renting my game, bro. Exactly. <laughs> so you need to rent everything else inside it. Exactly. Yeah. Give us all your money for this digital rental. Like, dog, never, yeah. ever, ever. But And then well, funny enough, <laughs> Exactly. You know, dating back to that, the, the article we had mentioned with the, uh, the microtransaction poll uh, just a couple of minutes ago, I forgot to mention, only 6% of consumers had said that they never paid a penny. I've never paid for a, a microtransaction once, ever. Not, not, not even 99 cents. I haven't bought part one of damn blue bro. box. Yep. Ever. You're the minority. 
six percent took took my uh took my money yeah never i refuse to be duped by these gaming companies and instead i'm gonna spend my money on worthwhile pursuits like cigarettes <laughs> Cigarettes and alcohol, obviously. Yeah, the, the 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 things we're celebrating in this life, the three W's. Hey, but I don't know how the W's, but there you go. Yeah, we'll we'll get ask us what the three W's are, and we shall tell. But anyway, uh, coming up, we just had a, a I saw a little article over on VentureBeat uh, mentioning uh, just the potential billions of dollars that nintendo is set to gain from subscriptions digital sales and like we said mobile uh and so it looks like you know what is it i don't know when when does the nintendo live go on so that we had mentioned a couple december September. Oh, September. So we mentioned how the Nintendo wanted to extend the life of the Nintendo Switch beyond five or six years and how they had shifted their uh, handheld market uh, revenue and strategy over to or eventually to what they're going to hopefully generate for mobile uh, and now seeing or now remembering the fact that they have subscriptions and digital sales it's going to be very, very interesting to see Nintendo's profitability. They're, they're set, man. They're set. Uh, they're gonna, they're bringing it back. Nintendo's going to be on the map. I mean, it's always been on the map. Don't get me wrong. But uh, they just broke the top 10 again, right? For mm-hmm. the most profitable uh, gaming companies, I guess. I don't even know what the correct term would be. But they're going to be probably number one within the next two or three years between all the all the stuff they got going on. This, this was the, the, the part of the story that most interested me, which was that the Nintendo Switch was the main driver of success in 2017 as hardware accounted for 60% of Nintendo's revenues. By contrast, Sony generated 30, 34% from hardware and Microsoft generated just 26%. That's pretty crazy. That's literally Nintendo made all of this money on flat out consoles and games. Yep. Wild. It's, it's a lot of money. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Like it's a, cr- a crazy high percentage of your profit. But if you think about what Nintendo is versus what Microsoft and Sony are, it's totally different. Microsoft is first and foremost, a software enterprise, right? A software company. And then you got Sony, which is also delving into electronics. I, in I want to say that these are comparisons based specifically on their gaming arms, not okay. Microsoft that as a company. Clear in the article, but I, I get what you're saying. And I do, and maybe- I, I'm unaware of the methodology. I want to say that that's what I presumed it was based on. I would be surprised if they actually no. numbers by not by exactly <laughs> wow surprising this is it's funny enough i was listening to freakonomics the other day and it, this is the exact line i get to use now surprise a uh, analysis company used faulty methodology to make a flashy headline <laughs> no i just i don't know if that's true i didn't read enough to know where they got the numbers from but it seems like i thought they were talking about companies as a whole not necessarily just the gaming markets but either way Still a huge number, and I agree with you. Nintendo is set. Yeah, definitely set. Well, speaking of the economics of games, 
we're going to follow up this thread on a couple of numbers that were presented by Superdata uh, for the top free-to-play PC games by revenue of 2017. Uh, the reason I thought that was interesting is that literally six of the 10 uh, are uh, 10 cent. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there you it, go. Which is like one, two, three, nine, ten, all ten cent. Anyway, uh, so then top mobile games uh, by revenue. Guess who's number one? Ten cent. Dude, Arena Valor, no joke. That game is awesome. Mm-hmm. Crazy, well polished. It's easy to play. It's understandable, and I mean, it's just. That MOBA scene, man. That MOBA scene is hard right now. Yeah, but hard. just top premium PC games by revenue. PUBG, 714 mil. I remember we mentioned last week or well, a couple of weeks ago, PUBG almost reaching a billion. Uh, and then number two is Overwatch at 382 million. I only mentioned that because, come on, son, you got to be able to be willing to uh, make this game for free and drive the market and please make it better matchmaking oh my god <laughs> all right anyway you, you uh, just want more people to carry it i just want people to carry me i don't want to be abroad anymore but um last up a little bit more salt thrown towards esa because i i always don't dislike them uh in particular uh this week they found a new reason uh to be of my ire. Um, What's the, it saying, I actually don't know. The Electronic Software Association. Oh, isn't it? Oh, it's Entertainment Software Entertainment, Association. Excuse me, Entertainment Software Association. Um, gotcha. And so they are uh, opposing a mu- uh, effort by the Museum of Art and Digital Ent- Entertainment to preserve abandoned online games. They are basically arguing that it would make source code public that they otherwise wouldn't and would give the MAID, which is Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, the ability to profit from these games in a way that uh, would infringe on their copyright. And they use the example that the MAID, the museum in reference, a nonprofit museum, may I add, charges $10 for entrance and therefore is violating the copyright law by ma- using their products for commercial use. Dog, you're talking to a nonprofit museum. Like, <laughs> that charges $10 to basically market your fucking product and its importance in history. Uh, yeah, that's actually really funny. Ridiculous. And that's what that's the issue I have. And it's, if you're doing a game that's currently public, no, why would you give up source code for Overwatch and let them host it? But... If you're taking Paragon down, like Epic is, why wouldn't you give it to a museum to be able to run a server? Right. It just if doesn't... they want to, you're not profiting off of it anymore. Mm-hmm. They're as willing to pay the server costs. For people to go and play there for free as opposed to, oh, sorry, go and play there in the location instead of, you know, taking the idea and bringing it home and adapting it. I get, I get it. I get both sides. It's really dumb though. I would rather have my game. If I was like a developer... I would rather have my game like stored for history rather than have the ESA argue for me to be like, no, no, no. Someone could steal my idea. Like, dude, 
my idea is already dead. I'd rather have someone like cherish Preserve. it. Exactly. Put it in a fucking museum, which this literally is, which fucking ESA. Christ almighty. <laughs> anyway, um, that about wraps up what we have for the day. Um, now, after the commercial break, stick around when we will sit down to speak with uh, Mr. Matt Laycock. Yeah, it's going to be good. Hope you enjoy. And uh, just let me know if you have any feedback for me. This is my first interview, so be gentle. Okay. Be very, very gentle. Soft. Soft. Super soft. Like a pillow. Like comfy pillow. <laughs> but then tell me the mean thing so I can say it yeah. to him. Yeah, Someone's he'll, he'll tell me that. But Constructive criticism is always welcome. Let's do it. Anyway. All right, guys. People Like Games is brought to you by Solo and Lilo because at the moment we don't have an advertiser. So we give our first unofficial endorsement to Uniqlo Slippers. Very comfortable, very cost-effective. Uniqlo, hit us up. Today, interviewing Matt Leacock. He is the creator of several award-winning board games, but most notably for the series Pandemic. Um, thank you for being on the show, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. So I guess I just want to get started, have more of a conversation. just want to say that I'm a huge fan of your work. My friends and I have definitely spent hours and hours playing Pandemic. And I was the one who picked up Pandemic Legacy. Unfortunately, we only made it through January before I moved over to the West Coast. So right now I don't have a group. But I wanted to know sort of where your passion for board games all started. Uh, what was the oh, first? I've been, I've been playing them since I was a little kid. Um, I've just always been totally absorbed in <laughs> in board games i played them with my family played them with friends and uh for as long as i've been playing i've been tinkering with them as well trying to trying to improve them that's awesome what was that do you remember the first board game you ever played i remember a lot of the early ones i'm not sure the first one i remember the first time i played monopoly uh played a lot of aggravation with my grandmother and rummy cube mm-hmm. um the ones that really uh turned on the light bulb for me though were um acquire and civilization playing those with my uh, dad and uncle acquire i can't even imagine civilization as a board game the intricacy of that must be incredible especially since you know i played it on uh on steam you know on the computer so just, oh, is that the uh, Sid Meier Civilization? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the uh, Avalon Hill. Civilization. Gotcha, gotcha. So, yeah, they're they're similar though in some respects. Both both complex. Gotcha. So I'm just curious, like when you started, you said you've been tinkering all your life playing board games. What what were the experiences that made you want to make board games specifically and not go into a different medium like video games or film or something like that? Well, I think part of it is I'm not an engineer. Um, I've always been interested in graphic design even okay. before I knew what that was. And, uh, you know, the materials are all around you. You can you can make a board game really simply. You just get some paper and a pencil and you can get started. So mm-hmm. as a kid, you feel totally empowered. You know, you've got all the engineering in front of you. <laughs> you <know>? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got all the tools, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's right. Got the paper and pen. Go for it. Cool. Yeah. Nowadays, uh, I, you know, I worked in tech for, for quite a while mm-hmm. uh, doing user experience design. Yeah. Um, now I like, uh, I'm not really attracted to video games so much in that. I guess I'm more attracted, I should say, to board games because they're more social and they're more about in-person experiences with people across the table. Yeah, I, I can totally imagine that. I mean, most of the games that I'm playing right now with my friends, like it's a good way for my, me and my friends to keep in touch because we enjoy the same uh, digital games and video mm-hmm. games and whatnot. But those voice chat services only do so much, right? You can only speak to them. You can't really see their facial reactions. So 
actually what my friends ended up <laughs> doing, we would set up Google Hangout calls because you can mm -hmm. have multiple people video calling. That way it's sort of like we're in person, but not really. It's a, yeah. it's a strange topic, but I can understand the draw of board games. I mean, this is the reason why I love playing them. Um, so if we're going to hit on the user experience stuff, like I saw your Vimeo, um, well, your UX interview that you did or presentation rather, sort of like a Ted talk about your design of pandemic legacy. Um, I'm here. I'm curious to hear about what a user experience designer, like what those qualities were that brought you to board games or how did those skills help you create the board games that you know and love today? Yeah, it's a so user experience design is like a perfect tool set for doing board game design, really. I mean, it stresses a lot of uh, iterative design. So you design the stuff and you get uh, you do some research, you, you put it in front of real humans, see mm -hmm. how it works out <laughs> and then you, you modify it. Um, so you can take that very basic process and bring it directly into um, game design. You're also looking at system design. So in both cases, um, you know, how can you create a simple rule set that people intuitively get? Uh, that uh, sort of creates emergent phenomenon. <laughs> Not yeah. to nerd out too much, but um, you know, you want to make the uh, interface of the game really easy to to understand and, and use. And all the skills that you you learn when you're becoming a user experience designer and an interface designer, you can directly apply to game design. That's awesome. Yeah, that's really really cool. I was curious specifically, like you're talking about, you put you take your board game, your, your template, your prototype, if you would, and then you put it in front of users do you have to print out a board game every time like how does that work if you're going to actually test yeah. the game it's uh so the physical nature of the game is actually pretty important um so in addition there's there's you know a lot of different legs to the stool of design for a, uh, for a board game you've got the uh mechanisms in it the mm -hmm. theme but also you've got the components to it um you know how they how you interact with them and you know your hands um uh, and your eyes and what they look like so um it's it's important for uh, Vita to come up with physical prototypes that I can mail out uh, to people that they can interact with, and I actually we ask them to videotape themselves oh, so okay, I can okay. see them actually interacting with the stuff when we're not in the room, so that that really ensure that we get a good blind test that way that uh, players kind of forget that you're around, you know, they are right. in their natural environment. Right, it's, right. It's they're not nice not worried. Study, really, so. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, so according to that same talk that, uh, you know, you talk about your user experience design and pandemic legacy, you said you only started working full time on board games back in like 2014, I believe. So I was just curious what like career or hobby experiences did you have prior that made you believe you could go full time in board games? And it wasn't the experiences so much as it was the um, uh, royalty income stream was healthy enough that uh, I could make that shift. Oh, it's okay. really difficult to make living doing board games there's only a handful of people who can do it independently mm -hmm. um just because the the numbers just aren't there i got um, you and when you figure out you know what a typical print run is and what your percentage is you, you got to sell a lot of units and aren't available to, to make that kind of leap wow yeah that makes sense uh pandemic was a huge shit when it came out i know so um that's just it, it makes sense to me i guess you have to have something else on the side and i was just curious like do you when you're going through the content, right, you're, you're figuring out what you want to do. Pandemic has a whole bunch of expansions coming through. Like, where, where does your passion come from? What do you, how do you decide what to do next, really? So I'm wondering. Yeah, I mean, I really do want, I mean, I'm lucky enough that I'm able to kind of select projects that I'm passionate about. And that, that's helpful because a lot of them take a year or two to, to design. Occasionally mm -hmm. you get a short project, which you can do in like three or six months. Um, 
well, now I can, I can more reliably come up with a product in about six to seven months. Early days, it took a lot longer. So it, it helps to really be interested and passionate with, uh, on the project you're working on. Right. Um, so the, the stuff I'm, I get most excited about is stuff that I want to play myself, frankly. Okay. Um, yeah. And Makes then, uh, I, I do get a lot of enjoyment coming up with novel systems that, um, engage people. So if I can, <laughs> if I, if I'm working on something and I think, Oh wow, the players are really going to love this. It really drives me forward to try to to, to get the prototype made and get it in front of people. Cause I love seeing the reactions. It's, it's, they're really interesting experiments, both in psychology and also in systems design. And <laughs> I find that really fascinating. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. They definitely psychological aspect. I can't tell you how many times we got mad at, uh, just the middle East in general. Cause for some reason, those black pieces, they would always just, there's an, always an epidemic over there. Not fun. So just seeing our interactions and how we go through. There's a lot of connectivity in that area. It's a little hard to get to. So yeah, it can be a pretty, pretty big trouble spot. Yep. Uh, so I went on your website, you know, leacock.com and I saw that according to your website, you have 18 games out to date that you helped create or created yourself. And I was just curious, like 18, 18 separate board games is a lot of content, right? I just wanted to know what the method to your madness was. Do you keep track of all your ideas via notebook, computer? Like, I guess. Is yeah, that- there's a there's a fair number of spreadsheets. I've also got a whiteboard with a workflow on it. Okay. So, I was going to say, uh, I didn't it's 18 know games, but it's like, you know, you look at it, it's about, I think it's 12 games, really. And then there's a half dozen expansions. Okay. And then those games are in families. And so it's not too hard to keep track of, but I do need to, they're all at different stages of development. And of course you don't know about the half dozen games that are, are currently um, under development. So oh. yeah, uh, whiteboards help quite a bit. Does it, is it hard to keep things uh, in check simultaneously? Like, I guess you said you have multiple games in development. What was the reason for that? I guess you don't want to follow one through to completion or you're in different stages of each process. Can you do things? Oh in yeah, I, I generally um, I'm lucky in that most of my games come uh, come to completion. I, I very few that I've worked on that have not actually been published. Um, usually they're killed in the notebook stage um, or in an early prototype. So I'm, I'm typically developing to some sort of um, publisher request or market demand or, or whatnot. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, but I'm working on multiple projects at the same time just so I can um, uh, basically switch tasks between them. It's it's easier to do. You know, several games over a long period of time, then one game in a very short amount of time. So you kind of need the, the ideas to marinate for a while. And then, you know, we'll send games out. Um, I say we because I'm, I'm often working with a co-designer. Mm-hmm. I'll send games out and then the playtest uh, feedback, you don't get immediately. It comes, it streams in over time. And so you need longer development cycles just to incorporate all that. That makes sense. And give people time to play the games. Right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess. It's nice. It allows me to kind of switch between tasks. I could be um, doing some ideation on one game, do some design on another, do some, um, you know, watch playtest video on a third and then do development on another one. And then, uh, you know, get feedback on, um, the illustration and, you know, do editing, uh, rules editing and so on. So, um, being able to switch between those different types of tasks is, um, makes the makes my day more enjoyable yeah, and tolerable. yeah. <laughs> it makes sense i guess you can get burnt out working on one topic and right. uh, yeah it's 100 understandable plus like you mentioned it takes a long time for players to play the game so you got a lot of downtime i guess right well yeah if i was only working on one game there would be a lot of downtime as i waited for for example people to play it um mm-hmm. so i'm able to just kind of switch into a different task for different different product cool Cool, cool, cool. So uh, right now, I hope you don't mind. We're going to get into a little talk about Pandemic Legacy, something I'm very curious about, and just Pandemic and Pandemic Legacy in general. So as you know, and you mentioned several times, um, 
it was Pandemic Legacy, at least, was the top board game on top of Board Game Geeks uh, for quite a while, right? I think it was recently upseated uh, this past year by Glue. Yeah, we had two two good years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Hey, I mean, uh, that was honestly what I looked at when I was looking at my next uh, board game that I want to get with my friends, and Pandemic Legacy is top of the list. So it's a great marketing tool, great marketing strategy, especially for those hardcore fans, for sure. Um, and that's just a testament to how good you made it. But I'm really curious, like, how did you decide to do this? I mean, what was, when did you first conceive of the idea for a legacy game? And I guess, was it after you saw Risk, I think, right? Oh, yeah, I played Risk Legacy with some friends. And so that was very much um, uh, on my mind. Okay. Uh, you know, I wasn't a big Risk fan, but I really enjoyed the legacy aspects that Rob Davio came up with for that game. Uh, the, the idea for Pandemic Legacy came from just a, a quick brainstorming session with the president of FTC Games at the time. Uh, we were working on different ideas for where we could bring Pandemic. You know, we could do maybe we'll do a Pandemic card game, maybe a you know some expansions, maybe a dice game. And then I don't remember who said it, but you know, we could do a Legacy game, and then we kind of laughed and mm-hmm. it just kind of shelved the idea. I, it seemed like way too big of an idea uh, for me, or you know, too much work. Right, I had a right, right. full-time job at the time, and I just didn't think there's any way I could could do it. Um, but one day I just started kind of sketching out ideas and, uh, it didn't take long, uh, maybe an hour, you know, I had a notebook, uh, a couple pages of a notebook, just totally full of, uh, ideas. I just had to do it. I was kind of hooked on the, on the concept. That's awesome. So, uh, yeah, I, I reached out to, um, Z-Man and they, they got me Rob's uh, contact info. Okay. And uh, basically just asked him if you want to work together, and he, he immediately said yes. So we've been working <laughs> together ever since. All right. Nice. Uh, that's, I mean, hey, you guys created together a wonderful, wonderful product. And even the first, just playing the first month has been amazing going through and seeing all the different things that could happen. Obviously, having a board game where you destroy things is terrifying. I was definitely worried because I was like, I paid 70 bucks. What's going to happen? But going through it is, uh, it's really, really exciting. Um, I'm just curious. Yeah, we've been really kind of blown away by the response of the, of the product. I mean, we, their playtesters really enjoyed it, but mm-hmm. you never know what's going to happen when, the, <laughs> when it hits the market. How do you keep track of all those interactions, like all the different moving parts? I don't want to give away too much to anyone who hasn't played the game and who's listening, but you've got, you know, putting stickers down in certain places. It changes the flow of the game. Like, I, I'm thinking in terms of systems engineering. You mentioned systems some, several times, and that's my background as well. So mm-hmm. we have software to keep track of requirements and the hierarchy and the architecture of everything as it flows down and up, right? So did you have something like that? Do you have a special software you use to keep track of uh, all these special products? We use um, almost, I think that we can. So uh, we keep track of just about everything in Google Drive, whether it's uh, Sheets or in Docs. Oh, okay, so okay. Rob and I uh, collaborate in that. And then we use uh, Sococo, which is a real-time uh, collaboration software. Oh. Basically, you got boys video chat. Never heard of it. Um, on that. Yeah, it's a small startup. I actually designed the software okay. <laughs> in my previous job. <laughs> so I get, to, I get to work in, in an environment that I, I designed, which yeah. is nice. And then um, uh, the prototypes created in Illustrator and the rules are in InDesign. So that's sort of the tool set. And uh, I keep track of the prototype where I keep track of the rules. And we do lots of... Um, all the observations go into big spreadsheets uh, that turn into punch lists for the next iteration. Yeah, I gotcha. And I've got a big, uh, I don't know, the, the journals that we end up writing are usually about 100 pages. Uh, wow. Some 100 and 200 pages. Okay. And then, you know, a couple hundred hours, one or 200 hours of observation, um, you know, video. 
and we watch it like one and a half speed. <laughs> Thank God, yeah. It's like let's let's do a slow podcast. You got to go one and a half, get through yeah, all that yeah. all that content. All right, um, I guess I know. So I looked at the iOS store. You got Pandemic there, and then on Steam, you're actually supposed to release Pandemic in quarter one. So coming out soon, really soon. That, that's news to me. I didn't realize that. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah. There you go. Uh, that. Yeah, uh, Asmodee Digital is doing all the the Pandemic. Um, okay. Uh, stuff. I was gonna say. Digital. I didn't know if you had any like plans yourself to try to hit the digital market. You know, having it, everyone has a phone nowadays, and obviously, it's probably the biggest medium you can reach everybody. But I was wondering if there's any any future plans about going on the computer, online multiplayer, trying to use that, or you sticking with board games? You love the probably not uh, digital first. I mean, it's it's important to be able to get get the games um, on phones. I mean, it's a great way for people to learn them and to play it. You know, when they're traveling and so on. So it's a, it's a wonderful way to like augment. Uh, you know, the board game channel mm-hmm. or the physical channel. Uh, but no, I don't have any plans on doing a, a digital game first. Um, I'm maybe a little bit curious about how you could do a companion app for a game. Right. There's certain parts of AI that I want to incorporate, but uh, I'm not super drawn to that because I do like having standalone games that you don't need uh, additional software for. Okay. Do you think it's possible to create like a digital board game and have it take off? Yeah, or? sure. I think so. I mean, if you can find a way that the, uh, that the electronic component really um, add something to the board game experience. You know, kind of like if it makes the uh, board game stronger in ways that are important for board games to be strong. Does that make any sense? I yeah. I I, I don't I, I think, think so. it makes sense to incorporate uh, a digital app to a game in order to make the sensory experience better. For example, okay. it might be more interesting if it was doing a lot of the bookkeeping or uh, if it had a certain AI that that it could really add. Or a lot of them use timers now. Yeah, looking at sand timers is kind of a pain in the butt. <laughs> yeah, I guess we're in the age of the digital stuff, people don't actually know what a sand timer is. Like, oh man, how long is this actually? Counting with grains of sand. Won't do. Yeah. Um, so, I guess my next question would be: Are you trying to take Pandemic into a story, like turn that into a story that's much larger than just the game medium? I know I'm thinking about specifically like Angry Birds, that type of medium. It was a mobile game, ended up getting a huge following, and then they went to other applications, stories, books, movies. It's actually incredible how big the brand has grown. And I'm wondering, it seems like you're clearly branding Pandemic well in the video game scene. Are you trying to ever bring that out? I don't know. I mean, it'll be an evolving conversation with Z-Man. Um, certainly possible. Uh, the things that we're looking at first and foremost are you know, broadening out the, the board game line. We've got a number of different directions we're taking it there. Everything from like Reign of Cthulhu to that appeals to... Mm-hmm. People who are really into uh, Lovecraftian uh, mythos. Um, uh, to uh, we've got a, a annual game that comes out, which is tied to uh, the regional championship or the world championships so every year. Survival? We have a pandemic uh, championship called Pandemic Survival. Yeah. And so we do a historical location-based game, um, and then uh, you know continue to expand out the base game as well. And then there's uh, Pandemic Legacy for people who are really into to narrative structure and legacy games. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's the primary focus right now. But uh, yeah, I mean, if the, the brand takes off, who knows where it'll, it'll go next? Awesome. Okay, cool. Uh, you mentioned in your UX week talk that you tried to design legacy around this this narrative beat, right? You have upbeats and downbeats, and you, you're trying to get a nice flow going. I guess, do you think the current stream of board games has that going for them? Or do you think Pandemic is like pretty much the only one in that niche that's trying to keep a user hooked 
Um, well, you know, when I designed Pandemic, I, I didn't have that in mind. Okay. Uh, it was only like in retrospect, looking back, seeing how the beat design kind of plays out, just even in the base game where you've got, uh, you, you go back and forth between hope and fear. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, all the while, um, difficulty kind of ramps up to a big climax. And I think a lot of games have that. Um, okay. The game that inspired Pandemic, uh, Lord of the Rings by Reiner Kingsia, certainly had that. And the players do actions and they improve their situation. And then Sauron shows up and messes everything up. And, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of go through that, that cycle over and over again as, as things escalate. So I don't think it's unique to Pandemic. I just, just happened to notice that it worked well. I got gotcha. you. All right. Um, moving on, I guess. I'm just curious, and I know they're probably all like your children, right? But if you had to pick a favorite, what's your favorite expansion or, or board game? And is it strange to know that something you've made has been so you know highly loved and critically acclaimed in the uh, board game scene? Uh, yeah, it is strange. It's it's wonderful, actually. I feel very lucky that it did t- take off. I, my favorite stories are when I run into people in conventions and they tell me about how the game brought them close to their family or their spouse and that's or brought them into the hobby. Mm-hmm. I love hearing those stories. So that's, that's hugely rewarding for me and very motivating. Um, if I had to choose uh, a game, I think I'd probably, it's hard. It's tough to choose between pandemic and forbidden Island. I mean, pandemic, okay. I started to build my career on it. Um, but, it, and so I'm really happy to give that to, to just about anybody. Uh, but forbidden Island also, um, it's so accessible. It's a great, uh, you know, you can give it to a kid at a, a birthday party and it's inexpensive and high quality and, and plays fast. So I'm really proud of that, that product as well. Awesome. I'll, uh, I actually have to check that out. I haven't heard of uh, Forbidden Island before. Well, I saw it on the website, but I haven't played it myself. So that's something that's interesting. Uh, you mentioned like you get these stories from your fans. What is the primary method you contact fans, I guess? Just through email? Is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can hit me up an email, um, uh, Facebook, Twitter. Um, but I also love going to conventions because I can meet up with people there. Mm-hmm. And then I see people at the championships as well. So cool. it's really, I really enjoy the, the conferences. It's a great way for me to connect with people who are players and, and just kind of see the products being played. Because when you're home, you don't really get a sense of that. Yeah. 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 Do you have any favorite story that you heard from your fans through the feedback? Uh, I know you mentioned just like the feel good stories and bringing closer to your family and whatnot, but is there anything that sticks out to this day? Like, wow. I remember, like- uh, uh, Rado, uh, Richard Ham, uh, approached me. I had never met him before. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, run, he does a lot of, uh, watch it played videos where he just kind of walks through a game and teaches you how to play it by playing it. On right, camera. right. Right. Yeah. Uh, I never met him before. He was, he was just talking about how, that game pandemic really just introduced him to the entire hobby and basically built this new career for him and brought him closer to his wife. And it just kind of blew me away to see the impact that it had. Uh, so that's, that's one that really stands oh, out. That's awesome. That's, that's really, really cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had a question. So I was feeling some questions from uh, the other co-host and just from other friends who have played it with me. And one of the, I don't even know why this would be a question, but do you have a favorite infectious disease that you think about when you're playing, <laughs> like, <laughs> like if you're playing pandemic, you're wondering like, what were the four diseases in mind that you had? Uh, that's too funny. You know, um, when I started working on the game, um, pandemics were in the news yet. I, I, I kind of lose track if it was like bird flu or what the, uh, what the disease du jour was at mm-hmm. the time. I didn't really have any in mind. Um, I, I very consciously did not name them because by not naming them, every, everybody can bring their 
Uh, yeah, it, it remains topical. If there's a right. if there's a big outbreak, then you just kind of slot it in there. Yep. So, yep. Um, when there was a big Ebola outbreak, that's exactly uh, what I was going to say. Yeah, <laughs> we came up with a we actually did a big fundraiser for it and kind of tied it to the yellow disease, which happens in Africa. Mm-hmm. And came up with a scenario and raised some money for MSF with it. Um, so, and we, we did that because you know we didn't tie anything down. Hey, that and makes also, sense. you know, it, it, I think it's a little more sensitive to people. Who, <laughs> these are actually. Real people who are actually dying. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. It's just, you know, it was a question that was requested and we didn't know if you had any diseases in mind. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, So you obviously create board games full time. You got a lot of content back and forth. You're always bouncing around. But do you have anything, you know, a favorite game that you love to play right now? Is there something that we should be on notice for? Any game you'd highly recommend? Um, There's a few, um, a couple of the uh, Spiel des Jahres nominees last year i uh, hit the table quite a bit over here i, I play a lot of games with my daughters and my wife mm-hmm. and one that really resonated was um uh, the el dorado game quest for el dorado yeah Brandon. okay yep, yep, yep. Uh, really really uh finely crafted game i mean i was impressed with his stuff and uh that game is just so nicely balanced and nicely designed also play a lot of magic maze which is a real-time uh cooperative game where you're trying to uh, go get your equipment and escape a maze. It's like a, a shopping mall. Actually, your your adventure is trying to get your axe and your potion or oh, whatnot cool. and escape this uh, this shopping mall. It's kind of a strange theme, but you're all silently moving your pawns at the same time. You can't talk. All you can do is put a, a red pawn in front of someone to and, and glare at them. <laughs> <laughs> but they need to make a move. Okay, so facial cues. It's uh, goes a long way. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm gonna check those out. That's for sure. Um, so we're going to switch off topic. Well, not off topic, but switch to something separate from pandemic, I guess, going, going through the past decade, right? I'm just curious, do you have a, do you have any ideas about what would be the most influential piece of user interface design that you've encountered in the past decade or so? Something, something that you thought like, wow, this used to be my profession, but this was a big change, really revolutionized the user experience and how we, we perceived, um, whatever it is we're looking at, whether it be applications, uh, you know, websites, uh, touchscreens, cell phones, not sure. Just something, some big breakthrough in the user experience realm. That- uh, let's see. I mean, two things kind of pop out. I mean, uh, it, there's no denying the importance of touch UI when it comes to smartphones. Right. Um, but uh, for me, on a day-to-day basis, um, the real-time editing that you get in Drive, that I think Google kind of pioneered a bit with Wave, Okay. has really, really changed the way I, I work um, just because I collaborate a lot at distance. Just about every one of my you know, collaborators is, is uh, in a different time zone or different country. And being able to, to do that stuff and be able to share um, material so effortlessly is, is really uh, bumped up my productivity, like probably by an order of magnitude. That's okay. Yeah, no, I... I guess I take that for granted. I went through college and used Dropbox the entire time. And that was the equivalent right back then. Yeah. I had to suffer through hand editing web pages mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, using, uh, Mark markdown and wikis and it, it was a real grind. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. Oh, oh, it's really changed my life. That's awesome. Okay. That's good to hear. Um, do you have anything interesting that you've learned lately that, you know, I guess I'm always on a quest to learn and, I'm learning more about systems engineering as a whole and whatnot. And that's just something I enjoy. Plus I read investment books and those are very exciting. Just seeing the market go up and down. Bitcoin learned about that, but is there anything you've learned recently that you really, really enjoy? 
I'm trying to think of anything that stands out. You know, I'm reading constantly. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the uh, I've been reading a lot about uh, the species collapse on our planet. Uh, that's been sobering. Uh, okay. The fact that we're having a massive die-off. So yep, I've been yep. reading a lot about that. It's the sixth uh, epidemic. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, horrifying what's what's happening right now. So um, I don't I don't think a lot of people are aware of the fact that uh, the number of like animals on the planet is now half of what it was in the seventies, and that the number of uh, species uh, diversity has dropped in half since, oh since I was born in my lifetime. So, right? Yeah. Been thinking about that, you know, perhaps something like that would would make an interesting game. I was exactly. It just seems like you're getting ideas from all over the place. This is very pandemic esque, right? It's. Uh, seems yeah, like I mean, the problem is, you know, uh, how do you model uh, saving the world? Um, you know, what what can you do? Mm-hmm. Who are the protagonists if they're everyday people? You know, that's true. Because that's that interests me both in um, uh, in the game terms, but also in everyday terms. Yeah. Hey, makes sense. I look forward. I wouldn't be surprised if a few years down the line we see something about that from you, and it's another hit. So it's going to be exciting. Um, going over. This is a question that was requested by the code host. So I'm going to ask you if you were able to have dinner and conversation with any one historical figure, living or dead, who would it be, and why? Oh, I'd love to sit down with uh, Leonardo da Vinci and uh, just uh, actually, I'd just like to spend a week like drinking wine and seeing the country, <laughs> and, you know, like, trying to, to get a sense of for what what his life was like. I've been reading his biography and uh, really remarkable uh, thinker and observer of the world and um, innovator. It's just fascinating sure. to read all about him. So it would be fun to just to spend some time with him. Awesome. Clearly, you had that question before. So that was good. No, I never, never had it before. Oh, really? Okay. I think uh, uh, Mod will be happy to hear that. So, all right. Uh, moving on, I guess my final question would just be Do you have any advice for someone who's always been a fan of games and who might want to foray into the actual creation side? Anything that helped um, made your journey easier? Any thought processes? Any like what steps should you do first? That kind of thing. And in what sense do you think? What sense do you think? your time is split between actually creating the content and then just consuming new things to get new ideas, uh, you know, actually working versus, you know, reading about it. Uh, well, at the end of the day, it is work. Um, a lot of time, I mean, the inspiration might strike you, but the quality really comes from putting in the time. Uh, you hear that with novelists a lot, uh, or, you know, if you're writing a screenplay or whatever, any kind of creative, or if you're writing poetry, any kind of creative endeavor, a lot of it comes from, just really putting in the hours. Um, you get stuck sometimes, but you have to kind of keep at it. Um, one thing, uh, when I guess pragmatic piece of advice is when I'm, when you're working on a game, just expect that you're going to make a lot of crappy stuff first. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. I, I've made a lot of crappy games. Um, and after a while they become a little bit less bad and then eventually they get better. And the same thing is true when you're working on any new product, it's going to start out pretty, pretty terrible. And then you keep at it and, and keep polishing it and so on. And the best way to, that I found to, to improve quality is to show it to as many people as you can and get as much input as you can and, um, iterate as much as possible. And one of the keys to that is basically treating your prototypes like they're disposable and you can throw them out at any time and not being too attached to them. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I mean like iterate like, like crazy, get as much feedback as you can and know that things are going to suck for a while. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
qualities in the grind. You're gonna have to keep going. Ah, uh, yeah, kind of is. I mean, these legacy games in particular, they take a really long time, and it's like uh, twelve, fifteen. I think this we're working on season three right now. It's going to be a good solid two years of work uh, going into that. And there's some days where you're like, oh man, I don't know how we're going to claw out of this. Um, mm-hmm. But the secret is just kind of keeping at it. Hey, uh, I guess are you when you're creating a game? This is going back into it a little bit. Are you trying to? Well, now that Pandemic Legacy and the success you've seen from it, uh, being at the top of board game geek and stuff like that. Does that ever motivate you to try to make an even better game? Or are you just trying to create content that you know people will like and wherever they fall in the rankings is wherever they fall? It's wherever they fall. Okay. Uh, you know, it's, it's always great to get that feedback. And it's wonderful when they, they're successful, but then they aren't always successful. And so it's useful <clears throat> to have some that, that don't just take off because then you realize that, A, sometimes you're lucky. B, <clears throat> sometimes it's, uh, you know, about the quality of the product. And, uh yeah, you know, it, it just, just helps with hubris. You don't you don't think like, oh wow, this is going to be a real uh, winner. You never know until they until they get onto the market. So I try not to focus too much on that. I want I want to create games that I'm really excited about and really believe in, mm-hmm. and then let's see how they how they fare after that. Awesome. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. I was just curious if that was like there's an extra impetus, extra motivation to. Uh, try to give more effort to one project than another, but I guess in Well, I sense- think for me, I, I don't want to repeat myself. So one of the things is uh, I want to make sure that any game I can really stand behind and believe in and honestly give to someone and say, you're going to have a good time with this, or mm-hmm. if not, know, you know, exactly who a product is for and, and really champion it. I don't want to have to feel like I have to apologize when I'm giving someone a product. True. If I feel that sense of apology, even when I'm explaining a game, I know there's something wrong and I need to go back and, and really kind of tighten up the design. Gotcha. Um, I guess as far as questions ha- go, we, we hit all the things that I want to touch on. Uh, I really appreciate you taking your time for this interview and a uh, big fan looking forward to season three of pandemic. And I guess uh, you have any closing remarks, anything you want to say to the fans out there? Yeah. Thanks for playing. I hope you continue to enjoy the, enjoy the stuff. It's very motivating. <laughs> well, uh, definitely appreciate it and appreciate your time. So thank you. And I hope you have a great day.